So today I want to talk to you about the big question that's been on my mind this week is, to whom do I give allegiance? To whom do I give allegiance? There's a political aspect to the Christian worldview. And oftentimes we can get confused about what that aspect is all about. What does it mean to be a Christian? Which political party should I vote for? Um, And I'm here to tell you that the political aspect of the Christian worldview has nothing to do with politics in our world. It confronts the politics in our world because our allegiance is not to a political party. Our allegiance is to the king who restored us to himself. Our allegiance is to Jesus. So in a very real sense, the Christian worldview has a political view, but the political view is that you belong to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. And as a member of the kingdom of God, a child in the kingdom of God, it has certain things that will affect you. You'll make choices in society, in our society, in this world, because of that allegiance that you have for Jesus. Um, It's very important that you understand that. Otherwise, you may get confused sometimes and and start saying, well, I'm going to vote for this party because this party is more, uh, in the the fleshly sense, you're going to do this for us. And And that's In the end of the exercise, it doesn't matter who holds the strings of power in our government. As long as you're on your knees and and trusting Jesus, Jesus can take whatever force it is that is in control and he can use it for his glory. You look at history, you look at what happens through history. He's done that over and over again. You you don't have to have your Christian party in power. God may put that Christian party in power because he wants to do that. But he may also cause it not to be in power and put something else in power because there's a bigger picture. He's, he's doing something bigger and far greater than we can see. The question really that you have in your heart must be, whom am I going to give my allegiance? Because in the end of the exercise, it doesn't matter who holds the power in the government if Jesus holds your heart. It doesn't matter who's in control of the government as long as Jesus is in control of your life. So if Jesus is Lord, what then does that mean for my life? And I want to discuss that with you today and look at a couple of passages of Scripture that you've probably been traveling through in, uh, in your word-wise reading. You'll read Acts chapter 5, uh, around about verse 29, and you'll read Esther chapter 3 and talked about that. And I want to talk to you about what's happening in those situations. So let's go to Esther first. To whom do I give allegiance? Now... You know the story of Esther, if you've been reading it through WordWise. Uh, there's a king, his wife is brought on show. She doesn't want to come and present herself to the rest of the kings to be bragged about before the king. So the king is upset with her and decides that he's going to get a new, uh, banish that queen from position. He's going to get a new bride. Uh, in the process of doing that, um, Esther is called, she's selected, she's groomed and she becomes the queen of the empire it's a pagan empire it's a a pagan king and she's a a godly girl although the mention of god is not mentioned in the book of esther but she is there she is the orphan of a of a man and a woman and uh, her cousin who is older has raised her as his own child mordecai was the cousin Mordecai's raised her up and he's been there for her. And as she's reached this position of um, importance in the kingdom, also a man called Haman has been elevated in the kingdom. 
Now, Haman is next to the king and he's very important. As he's walking around and strutting and stuff, he expects people to bow to him. The trouble is Jews don't do that easily. Jews do not bow to men. They resist that. They would rather die than bow to men. They believe that the only knee, your knee should only bow to God. And so there's this sense inside of Mordecai, who's a God-fearing Jew, even though he's in this place of exile, that he's not going to pay homage to this man. And we read these words, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. So the king had actually sent a command out and said, you know, when you see Haman, you better get on your knees and bow down to this guy. And Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him. He would not bow to a man. That's stubborn rebellion. That's stubborn rebellion. Uh, Let me just say something to you. Rebellion is unavoidable in life. Get used to it. You're going to do it. You're going to rebel in life. You are made to rebel. You are born to rebel. You either rebel against God or you rebel against the world, flesh, or the devil. But you cannot walk in both worlds without rebellion. Get used to the idea that you've been created to rebel. So Mordecai decided that he was going to rebel at this point in time and he refused to bow down, nor did he pay on. And of course, we read in the next a couple of verses later, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. That often happens. As soon as you start to press on in God, as soon as you start to do something in God, as, as soon as you decide to rebel against the world, the flesh and the devil, you know what? The devil doesn't like that even a little bit. And so there's rage starting to come into this Haman's life. Now you read that story and you'll discover how no matter how mad Haman got, he couldn't get justice against Mordecai. He tried really bad. He he decided he was going to kill off all the Jews because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. He set up a plot and a plan to destroy all the Jews that were alive. He was going to genocide every one of the Jews just because this man wouldn't bow to him. Such was his rage. He was pretty angry about this whole thing. And that would have meant that Esther would have been killed as well, but they didn't know that she was a Jew. And so the whole, you read the book of Esther, if you haven't read the story, read the book of Esther and find out how it all comes out. But I know one thing, that Haman, in his rush to bring Mordecai to justice, creates a gallows in his backyard, which in the end God hangs him on. You have to decide... Who are you going to rebel against? You have to decide in your life how you're going to live your life. Who's your allegiance to? And sometimes it's not comfortable to know that your allegiance is to something that is outside of this world, outside of your flesh, and away from the devil's ways. It's difficult for you because it means that you will be swimming upstream most of your life. When we go to Acts chapter 5, we see exactly the same picture drawn to us at this point acts chapter 5 we we know that the disciples have been out there at the gate called beautiful and they have they've done this wonderful thing they've prayed for this person and his legs have been strengthened he was born lame and now he's walking leaping and praising god they've given what god has given to them they've given to this man the gift of healing has come 
Peter and, and, and John have said, you know, don't look at us as though we're, we're some mighty pious people. You know, we've just got faith in the name of Jesus. It's Jesus' name that has done this great miracle. And he brings the attention back to Jesus because Jesus is the one he has allegiance to. He's just obeying Jesus. Of course, he's, a, he's brought before the Sanhedrin. He's brought before the uh, Sadducees. He's brought before the, the high priest. And they are ridiculed and they are ostracized because of their allegiance to Jesus. They keep on bringing Jesus into the fact and telling the, 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 the powers to be that they are the ones responsible for Jesus' death. But Jesus rose from the dead and he resurrected. And they don't like that. They don't like it. They're kind of cross at them. And they told them, shut up. Don't speak this any longer. We don't want to hear it anymore. And they let them go. So that was in chapter 3. Now we're in chapter 5. There's some time passed here. And what they've done, they have filled Jerusalem with with the teaching about Jesus, they haven't gone away and said, oh, I'm sorry, I'll, I just won't bother you. They said, our allegiance is not to man, our allegiance is to God. So we are not going to do what you want us to do. We're going to do what God is telling us to do. And they've gone around and they've filled the whole place with the teaching. Now, of course, they're really angry about them. And so they arrest them again and they put them in jail. They're going to deal with them the next day and... And the next day, when it comes to the next day, the angel of God has gone and visited the jail at night time. I like the way God does that, you know. When you put your allegiance in God, he does things. He opens doors that no man can open. And he shuts doors that no man can shut. He does things that only he can do. And when you put your allegiance in his hand, it works for you. It really does work for you. And so these guys are locked up inside and they're going to be pulled out. Pulled out. They're, they're, they're angry. They're angry at them. And they're out. The angel comes down. He opens the door. The guards are still on the gates. He leads them out and he says to them these very bold words, run to the hills and never come back while you're safe. No, he doesn't. He tells them, go back into the temple Stand in the midst of the temple and preach the words that I'm giving you to preach. Preach this way, this truth, this life. Preach it in the temple. So in the morning, when the morning comes and the high priests send down to open up the gates and the prison, the guards are outside, the, the doors are all locked and they, they open up and there is no one inside. Where are they? And someone comes, they're preaching in the temple. So they go down to the temple and they go and pull them back in. They set them up in front of them and they are kind of mad. And of course they address them again and they, they want to bring them and uh, stand there. And verse 21 says, And they heard that they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the, the high priest and those who were with them came and called the council together with the, all the elders of the children of Israel. And they sent to the prison to have them brought the apostles brought to trial again. So they're now in the trial. They're going to be tried for what they're doing. They've disobeyed the powers to be. Their allegiance is to Jesus, not to the powers that be. But when the officers came, they did not find them at the, in, the, in the prison. We know that. And they found that they were outside teaching. So they came, took hold of them saying, look, men, we put you in prison. Look, the men who have put you in prison are standing in their teaching. So they came with the captain and the guards and they, they, they ferried them back. And they, were, they did it nicely because they feared the people because they said the people, will, they said the people will stone us if we're rough with them. And when they had brought them, in verse 27, they said before the, high, the council, the high priest asked them and saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in the name, to look 
And look, you have filled Jerusalem with all your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the other apostles answered them and said in verse 29, he said this, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging him on the tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand of, to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit he has given to us. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan... Oh, sorry. Sorry, they tell him this. Then of course, they're angry at these guys. So they put the guys out. And a guy called Gamaliel stands up and he says, look, you've got to be very careful what you're going to do with these guys. They intend, the Bible tells us, to kill them. So this is not just some sort of, oh, smack your hand, you're being a naughty boy. This is murderous, this plot. They want to take them out and stone them. They want to take them out and kill them. That's the intent. Gamaliel stands up and says, be very, very careful what you do with these guys. He says, and he gives them a story about other guys who had risen up and carried men away and they had met their deaths without the, the Sanhedrin or the, the council being involved and the whole thing had, had, had filtered out. And then he, he says to them, if you... You've got to be careful what you do with these guys because if you, if you put them to death, you might find yourself actually fighting God. So they listened to him and they listened to what he had to say and, um, and they warned these guys. No, I'm just trying to find it where it says it there, verse uh, 20. Uh, sorry, verse 28, is it 28? We, we gave you strict orders, so it might be on the next page. There it is. And Peter and the apostles answers, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised us up, whom you had put to death, hanging him on the cross. And he, he told them that. And, and then they decided that they would punish them. So they beat them up. They whipped them with rods. That. The, the Jewish flogging was a simple one. You get 39 less one, 40 strikes less one. The Roman flogging was a little bit more gross. They had a cat of nine tails. They'd rip you back to bits before they got tired, you know, and they'd hand it to somebody else. So that one would probably disembowel you or kill you. But the Jews were more restrained and they will give you a, a Jewish flogging. So that was a cane across your back and it was like and then 39 strikes with a, with a rod across your back. That, and then they went away. And they were rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer for the name. Amazing, hey? Why? Their allegiance was to God. You know, it didn't matter what you did to threaten them. It didn't matter what you did to scare them. They went away and they were, they were happy that they were able to suffer for the name of Jesus because their allegiance to Jesus meant more to them than getting along smoothly with everybody else. So we, we find them now sitting down and praying together in a prayer meeting. And what are they praying for? They start praying in, in Acts chapter 5 and they start talking about God, how God is, you're the creator of everything, you've put the kings in place and how they rage against you. And then they make these words, God, give us boldness to declare the word. Boldness. They didn't ask for protection. They asked for boldness. And so after that, 
They went and they turned the world upside down. Of course, the wrath was still there. The anger was still there. And shortly after that, Stephen was martyred for his faith. He was killed. They made good their threat. And you go through the book of Acts and you see others killed by the edge of the sword. James, the brother of John, was killed by the edge of the sword. Why was this? Because their allegiance was to Jesus. It wasn't to the powers to be. In fact, it was quite obvious that you know, the more Christians that got saved, the more problems they had in the courts because the Roman society was a very legal society. And if you had a problem with a Roman and you had to go to court, that would actually give you a reasonable court session you know stand up there and you'd give your defense somebody who was accusing you would come and they'd talk to you about what was going on and you'd argue the point and then the the guy who was listening he would act as the judge and he would make a decision you know every every person got a hearing every it was the way it was in rome but too many christians were being brought now to the courts because of their allegiance to jesus so they had to create some way of sifting this out so it didn't clog up the courts and it was a simple thing all they had to do was pour out a libation to Caesar and say, Caesar is God or Caesar is Lord, because they believed that Caesar was a little demigod. But a Christian wouldn't do that because it was the test of allegiance that would mark them. They would say, Jesus is Lord, and you couldn't get them to bend. And so they set a little rule up that said something like that. All they have to say is, Caesar is Lord, and they'll be set free. If they say, Jesus is Lord, and they say it three times, there's no need for a trial. Take them away and do what you will with them. And so hundreds and thousands of people were put to the test, give a libation to Caesar, and their allegiance showed them that they were not worthy of this world. They said three times, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and then were fed to the lions or burned at a stake, or put to death by a sword, or crucified. That's all it took. Allegiance. Who's got your allegiance? Where do we put our allegiance? The question really is, are we going to be men-pleasers or God-pleasers in society? Are we going to try and please men, or are we going to try and please God? Rebellion and disobedience is unavoidable. You've got to just choose who you're going to rebel against and who you're going to disobey. You decide to rebel against God or rebel against the world, flesh and the devil. You, can, you can't be in harmony in both kingdoms. You either walk in the kingdom of light or you're walking in the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground between both. So who has our allegiance really is who has our heart and where our heart is based. And so when we face our world, we see this played out over and over again in our world. Now Martin Luther King was a was a, um, what would you call him? He was a preacher, wasn't he? Methodist preacher, was it? Or was a Presbyterian preacher, some sort of preacher. But it, Lutheran, was it Lutheran? Was it after his name? Maybe, maybe. Oh, no, that was the other Luther. That was the other Luther. That was the one that was, same thing, rebelled against the, the Pope. So this, this guy here, he's decided that uh, blacks should be equal to whites. And he decided to exercise civil disobedience. That means he should say that one has a moral responsibility to un, 
to disobey an unjust law. It means if the government puts a law in place that is wrong, then you as a believer before God has a, have a right, a moral obligation to disobey the law that the government puts in your place. Well, that's anarchy, isn't it? That's just being a law unto yourself. Surely doesn't the Bible say in Romans chapter 30, <clears throat> 13 that you should obey the laws that go, are governing you, that they are holding the sword for, for a reason and they're trying to bring... And surely in other places it says, it says quite clearly you should obey the, the laws that are governing your society. Yes, that's true. But when those authorities want you to deny God or want you to cut across and say you need to do something that's wrong or moral and we are forcing you by our law to do it, you have no other choice but to pull your card out and say, Jesus is Lord. I'm not going to do that. You may not be able to escape the consequences of your rebellion. You might get taken out and locked inside. You might be taken away and killed, but you cannot escape the conflict. You have to go, no, I will not obey. Civil disobedience, what do these guys do? If you haven't read about it, you should do a little bit of search about it. They started to travel on trains, which were only... this one lady who, who became famous. She sat on a, on, on, a train, uh, on a bus and refused to get up for a male, white male who came onto the bus. She says, no, I'm not going to get up. I'm a black lady, I'm not going to get up. I'm going to stay. I said, did you just study that, did you? You just studied that, did you? Well, that's amazing, isn't it? And I'm here, I'm talking about it on Sunday. I didn't know that. I saw you grinning, so I thought you must have. She sat down and she said, no, ladies should be seated and men should stand if there's no more room, which is what you would say if it was white. But she's a white, so she's less. She's a black, she's less. The man should sit down in the place. She refused. She was arrested. And it started to, to bring strain in this society. It started to push strain because somebody decided that that was an unjust rule and that it needed to be broken. Martin Luther was, King was assassinated because he took a role and went against society. He paid for it with his life. That's often the case. Sometimes it's going to cost you something dearly to rebel against the devil. He doesn't like it. He says, this is my world. We're playing with my game and you will do what I say. And if you don't, I'm going to make your life horrible. If you're playing with the flesh, it's the same thing. Government has a tyranny. Sorry. Government can be tyrannical. The way they get you to do something is they coerce you by force. Make a ruling, you know. So here's, uh, here's something that's sort of heating up in our society now. Shall we have gay marriages? So same-sex marriage. Well, it's going to come onto the agenda again. Um, the the Labour is trying to bring it back onto the agenda again and saying that within 100 days of uh, putting us in force, we'll have gay marriage. We'll have same-sex marriage. Thinking that same-sex marriage is going to produce the solution to the problem of acceptance amongst the gays. You know, you never get the problem of acceptance sorted by just marrying a person, even if you're of a different sex. I don't get my problems of acceptance and worth met because I married my wife. It doesn't happen that way. You have to have your, your issues of acceptance and worth met in God, who is the one who gives you, before you get into that. Because if you're looking for her to give that to you, even marriage won't give that to you. You can't get it this way. So it doesn't matter whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, you can't get it that way. You can't become or feel more worthwhile just because you marry somebody. That person's, your worth is not hinged upon what that person thinks about you. It's hinged about God, what God thinks about you. 
And true worth is, is, is found when you find your acceptance in your maker. That's where you get your true worth. Anyway, they'll, they'll bring that in by force. Now, how will it affect me? I have a license to marry. So I can marry you according to the law. Now, they haven't actually worked out what that means for me yet. If I want to hold my ticket to marry and a gay couple come into the house, and they say, we want to join your church, can you marry us? And I say, no, they haven't told me whether I'll spend time in jail for saying no. In fact, in the States, people have spent time in jail for saying no. So there's very grey. There's no safety here. But, you know, I can say, okay, if I want to hold the ticket and play with the rules, here's my ticket to marry. And, you, and a gay couple come in here and say, we want you to marry. That's something that I've got to eat up. In the end of the exercise, it may cost me, if I decide to keep on hanging on to the ticket, it may cost me my freedom to be free to say no. It may cost me. They might put me inside. Oh, I can say, well, that's what I think about your ticket. I don't care about getting you married in the sight of men, just as long as you're married in the sight of God. As a de facto couple in the sight of God, you have exactly the same rights as a... So why don't we just drop the whole idea of having a license and just marry in the sight of God and live together as husband and wife before God in covenant with God. You can't make me marry you now because I don't have a license to marry you. And everybody in our church who decides to get married from this time on are married before God and not before men. Well, that's in a solution. Well, but that's one of the things that we're going to have. Will governments do that? Yes, they will. They will change laws and they will force you. You can't have your kids in homeschool anymore. You're teaching them godly values. You have to put them in a secular school where we can get to the heads and screw their minds. And you decide not to do that? Well, we might take your children off you. Like they do in other countries. Like they do in other countries. So, yeah, this is a question about the tyranny of government. Governments coerce you to do something against your Lord and Savior, against the Word of God. What are you to do? The question is, where is your allegiance? Do you say, oh, well, I'll just go along with him and, and just go along. And yeah, and in the end, you know, Hitler raises up all the churches saying, well, we've got to support Hitler because we've got to... And he goes and kills all the Jews. And we're going to say, oh, well, that was maybe the wrong thing to do. And the voices that stood against Hitler were taken out and killed. Then there's the, the, the tyranny of the majority. This is, this is everybody says it's okay. Everybody says it's okay. Is it right to move in together, to live together before you get married, to try before you buy? Is it right to do that as young people? You know, you get a girlfriend, once you've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you sit there and say, oh, yeah, well, what would it be like to be, oh, see, mom, I'm going to go and live in, move into with them. And you say, okay, yeah, that's not the way it used to be. It used to be, you know, you'd ask them for marriage and they'd ask the parents and then they'd agree to that. Then they would get engaged and after they got engaged, they had a party and then they'd get married and then after they got married, they moved in together. Well, that was what it was like in 1953. Only 3% of people actually did the other thing. But in 2014, 2015, you know what? 85 to 90% of people lived together before they get married consequences of that is 93% failure rate in the 
relationships. They did a longitudinal study to find out how it works and how it fix, affects relationships. It destroys relationships. It's very bad for relationships to do that first, live in together before you get married. But if you don't hold up that line and you say to people, like, oh, oh, we won't be moving in together before we're married. We'll only move in after we get married. You're going to get some things called ostracism. What's ostracism? Can you tell me what ostracism is? You're going to be excluded. <laughs> you're one of those people. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be put down because of your stand. Now, that's just got to be something you accept. You've got to say, my views are going to be completely outside of what your level of acceptance is going to be. I'm going to actually say things like, I believe in God. I'm going to say things like, I believe that God created the heavens and earth in six days. You're going to say, you are mad out of your brain. I said, well, you may think so, but you believe we came from nothing. We, were, we spontaneously evolved it from nothing into something, which has been proven to be wrong, but you just choose to believe that rather than choose to believe God, which is more rational. And I can say that, but I said, well, we are a secular government, and because you're saying what you're saying, it's hate speech, so we're going to lock you up. We're going to ostracize you. You're going to not have a job here. You don't believe in global warming? Well, you can't work with us because we all believe in it. You see, these things that God preaches in his word require us to switch our convictions on and ask the big question about to where do I place my trust and allegiance? Who has my allegiance in this situation? To whom do I give allegiance? Do I give it to the world, the flesh and the devil, or do I give it to God? The world, flesh and the devil comes to you and it says, the flesh says to you, you know, you know how much you want to do the thing that you want to do and you wrestle with that every day. It comes and talks to you and speaks to you and wants you to draw you into it and you have to either rebel against your flesh or you have to agree with your flesh. So it brings it right home into your own household, right home into your own head, right home into your own bed. When you're laying in bed and you're thinking about stuff and you think, you know what? This is not expressing my allegiance to the Lord Jesus. This is expressing my allegiance to the flesh. And you're aware of what's going on in your mind and you have to rebel right there Right then, you have to say, you know what? I'm going to push that one out because I don't want that in my head. I'm going to let Jesus be Lord. That means your whole life has to be like a living sacrifice. That's what he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren and sisters, as mer- by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That basically means this. You've got to tie yourself onto a cross or nail yourself onto a cross, be crucified on the cross, and recognize that you're there to put to death everything that you feel like you want to do, which is not what God wants you to do. Everything. Whether it's uh, mindful, ch- you know, chasing around some fantasy in your mind, whether it's uh, hateful thoughts towards a person, whether it's lying to get yourself out of trouble, whether it's cheating and stealing, whatever it is that you've got running around your head that you wish that no one else could see. You don't want anybody else to see it because if they saw it, they wouldn't like you very much. You know, but all that stuff you've got to put on the cross and you've got to kill it off. You've got to rebel against it. That's this place. It's this place. The living sacrifice. You've got to stop living. No, you're still alive and you've got to put it down. And then he tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So the implication is that we know the will of God and that we are to obey the will of God. Now Jesus said as much in, in I think it's in, uh, in John, where he says, Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils and in thy name done many wondrous works? And then will I profess unto them, I, neither know, I never knew you, depart from me, you who work iniquity. That would be the hot, most terrible thing to have heard when you stand before him. If you, if you want to just cast that over The implication here is that you could spend your whole life doing churchy stuff. What does he say? Casting out demons? A whole life doing those stuff. But if you haven't learned who your allegiance is to, you just do stuff because it's religious, you could find yourself in a real pickle later on. Because he said, you know, I want to talk to you. You didn't want to talk to me. You did churchy stuff, but you didn't come to me and you didn't let me change you. So there's a problem here. And you don't get in because you had no allegiance to me. That's a hard one. I, I, listen, I look at that and I think, oh, thank God, help me, help me. When we're doing our um, apologetics course, we, we, we read this. And who was at the apologetics course on Friday? Wasn't it great? Did you enjoy that? I thought it was good. Who liked the pizza? Yeah, yeah. Who liked the study? Now, if I asked you a question, if I could ask you a question, you know, can you give me five reasons why you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Can you give me, just give me one. Somebody call out one reason why it's the Word of God. Because of, because of nature, because of what you see in nature. God, yeah, beautiful, accurate props. And you weren't even there and you got it there. It's real. It's like it's no warts. It's, 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 sorry, it's warts and all. It's like he's, the, the writers never hit anything. They put it right out in public. You know if they'd started hiding something, there would have been a problem. If it wasn't real, if, if it was somehow prettied up and it was all covered up, all the bad stuff was covered up, you'd know you'd have a bit of a false, false doctrine, doctrine, uh, document there. But no, you got everything, every little gruesome bit was put in there. So you could see. Sorry? Uh, oh, yeah, it's coming. The conscience is coming, yeah. All right, so here we are. This is the passage of Scripture in verse 15 that we used on the, on the thing. And I just want to just talk to you about this at the beginning from 13. It says, who, there, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Of course, doing the thing that God wants you to do is the good thing, okay? So who can harm you? And he stops for a while and thinks, yeah, well, there's plenty of people who can harm you. <laughs> if you're zealous for doing good, of course you can get hurt. I mean, one of the things that you've got to contemplate when you're going to go and do good is that you might suffer for doing good. And then Peter says, you know, well, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing bad. I mean, if you're going to wage it up, you're not going to get out of suffering. You're going to suffer somewhere, you're going to suffer. So he's actually not giving you any room not to suffer. He's just saying, choose what you're going to suffer for. Don't suffer because of your sin, but suffer because of your good, doing good for God. He says, so who is there to harm you for, if you prove zealous for doing good? And he stops and thinks, yeah, well, there's, yeah, there's people to harm you. But even if they should, you should shovel for the sake of righteousness, you, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So he's saying, don't be intimidated. Okay, you might suffer. You might, you might get put to death, he says. 
So there's some that are going to actually hurt you if, you if you don't do what they say. The government can hurt you. Society can hurt you. The world can, can hurt you. Your flesh gives you pain. And the devil certainly can stand against you and, and try and get you to do the wrong thing and give you pain if, he, if he's allowed to. But he says these words, and I want to draw your attention to it. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now the word sanctify simply means to set, a, set apart. Christ is Lord in your hearts. And then he says, and um, this is where we go in the apologies, and be ready to make a defense to everyone who should ask you for the, for the reason of your faith and stuff like that. But he says, sanctify in your hearts the Lord, Christ as Lord in your hearts. He says, so what does that actually mean? Well, it means that I have to make a decision that, number one, I am going to suffer. Just accept that. And that I'm choosing who I will suffer for. I don't think it's wise for me to suffer for the world or the flesh or the devil. So I'm ruling them out. I'm ruling out allegiance to society's governments because there's no point in suffering for a government that's anti-God. So I'm ruling that one out. Who will I suffer for? I will suffer for my Lord. That's it. So I'm setting myself now into my heart and I'm saying, Lord Jesus, you be Lord in my heart and in my life. I'm sanctifying you as Lord. That's right now. It's nice now. We feel good about that. It's nice in the air-conditioned building. It's feeling lovely. But you know, Christopher, when you go on to the job and you're working with guys, we talked about working with guys. There's some bad boys out there in the workplace. They don't like Jesus and don't like the Jesus way. And the devil is in control of them. And you can sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts today. But when you go out tomorrow and you dig a hole in the ground and somebody is seeing you working and they don't like what you're doing and they're under the control of the devil, they may get upset with you for some reason. And they may have no reason to stop themselves saying all manner of things to you to try and make your life difficult and suffer. Now, you've got to choose now. Am I going to let that happen? I mean, Paul would say, yeah, you've just got to get with it. Sometimes he says, you know, it's not legal for you to beat me. I'm a Roman citizen. You put shackles on me, you ripped my back open, and you went to apply a belt to me. Did you know that I'm a Roman citizen and it's not legal for you to do that? And they withdrew straight away because they were breaking the law of the land. He used the law against them. But in other places, he was beaten. In other places, he was stoned. In other places, he was, he was cast away. Why? Because he could choose. And if you can use the law to defend yourself, use it to defend yourself. There's nothing wrong with defending yourself according to the law of the land. But if the law requires you to break the laws of God, disobey it. Set in your heart the will of God to disobey that which is unjust according to God's principles. They say, abort a child because it's got a club foot. It's got other things in it. You should abort the child. I'm thankful that Bennett wasn't aborted when they gave that advice. 
There's places to disobey. But you have to set that in your heart right now and say, you know, on Monday when it gets really tough, I made a choice on Sunday to have Jesus as my Lord. And whatever that means for Monday, that's where I go. Because Jesus is my Lord. Amen? All right, that's civil disobedience. That's rebelling. All you have to do that now is live that. (laughs) Everyone stand up. If you're like Winston and Rebecca and have just come from China, that has significance. Because to stand in China and say, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to follow the way has great consequences. Oh, it's easier here. But in China, that could cost you your life. We're sort of stuck in this fool's paradise. Everything's kind of easy for us at the moment. But the lesson is for us to listen up now and try and make application of this now while it is easy. Because if it's hard for you to run and it's easy, what's it going to be like when it's tough and you have to run when it's tough? It's better that you start to prepare yourself now by saying no to yourself and rebelling against your flesh and rebelling against the things that are in the world that are wrong. I'm not going to, li- I'm not going to watch that program. I'm not going to even watch the next one of that because it's wanting me to watch it. I'm not going to fill my life and mind with that. I'm just going to go God's way. I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. So that God wants me to do this. I'm going to rebel against the world, the flesh, and the devil because I'm getting practice where God is going to take me in the future. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads and let's pray and ask Jesus to help us. Father... We come to you and we thank you for your word that calls us to lordship. Lord, you said that if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Lord, we know that that confession of Lord is not just a verbal mental assent to your control of our lives, Father. It is a submissive lifestyle to obeying you as the supreme controller of our lives in every situation. Lord, help us to confess with our lives that you are Lord and to live in the resurrection of of Christ's life so that we can say no to sin and yes to God and walk with you from this day on in Jesus' name. Help us to recognize that our allegiance is to you and not to anything else. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen.